3: These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. <laughs> Good morning, dear listeners. This is Luke speaking. From my mouth to your ears. Hello. We recently roly polied into our eighth year of the other stories, and I don't know if you've noticed, but we publish a lot of stories. One a week. That's... uh, One, two, three, four, five... A lot of stories per year. And in an effort to fight back the infinitely folding layers of details, the pastry of time itself, we wanted to spend some time today talking about some of our favourites from this last year. Be warned, if you're a constant listener, you've probably already heard some of these stories, and that's fine. Skip ahead to the next episode. However, if you'd like to hear our staff picks for 2023... If you'd like to celebrate some of the stories from this last year, do stick around and and see if your favourite is in our list. Or if it's not, be sure to let us know in the reviews and comments. So, on to our first pick.
0: G'day, I'm James Barnett, aka Jimmy Horace, As part of the staff at Hawk and Cleaver, I'm a narrator, sometimes writer, and most recently a producer for The Other Stories. Being part of this team and producing my own fiction podcast, The Night's End, I hear and work on a lot of stories, so this has made this decision tough to pick out a favourite. I somehow managed to narrow down a long list to Desire and Sons, which was written by Nicola Lombardi and translated from Italian to English by Jay Weintraub. Nicola Lombardi is a horror veteran and has written two novelizations of two Dario Argento films, Deep Red and Suspiria so I felt very honoured to be asked to have this episode as my first ever production work on the podcast. It felt very fitting as well as the month's theme was haunting, which is a favourite of mine. Everybody loves a soft haunting story. Anyway, I really do hope you enjoy listening to Desire and Sons as much as I enjoyed producing it, whether it be for the first time or again. Stay horrific everyone. The small yellow sign displayed in the window draws my attention as if someone were repeatedly tapping his knuckles against the glass as I pass by. Instinctively, I slow to a halt and take a few steps back. So, I had read it correctly. Leaning against an old suitcase and surrounded by a collection of the most varied of objects. Silverware in an antiquated style, alarm clocks, massive photo albums, Dolls, small boxes of inlaid wood. A lemon colored poster, the size of a business letter announces in words precisely traced with a red marker, ghosts, bought and sold. It is clearly the shop of a dealer in curios, secondhand antiques or something of that sort. I'd never noticed it before, but it is also true that I rarely find myself passing through that part of town and I lift my eyes to the store's side. A string of characters in wrought iron simulating an elegant cursive script informs me that I'm standing in front of Desire and Sons. I take a quick look at my watch although I know I'm not in any particular hurry. Even before I decide to enter curiosity drives my palm down onto the door handle. At the ringing of the small bell hanging above the door The noises of the traffic along with the main street seem to be sucked into a vortex that removes them instantly from my hearing. The piercing heightened sound of a siren is lost in the distance, along with the honking of horns, the voices of passers-by, the annoying musical buzz streaming from the cell phones. Quite an evocative effect, also due to the second ringing, the one set off by the closure of the glass door that proclaims the descent of a silence that I instinctively associate with the inside of a church. Looking around, I venture an Excuse me! The space is not very large, and the fact that it is extraordinarily cluttered with items on display makes it appear narrow and almost cramped. From the shop window, the late afternoon light illuminates everything with a powdery golden sheen and I cannot help but lose myself gazing among the shelves packed with inscrutable rummage. The dusty cabinets, a pair of bleak grandfather clocks, a barrel piano, a cumbersome globe, and the endless supply of books occupying almost every empty section of the walls, as they compete for space with the already pitch dark paintings, made even darker by the shadows. Lingering in the air, a faint floral aroma, perhaps calycanthus, hovers over the scent of closure. I try again. Good evening! And then behind the counter, from a blue curtain that I had not noticed before, appears a small man, slight and bold, with a pair of old-fashioned pince-nez glasses fixed to his nose. I catch myself thinking that such a character would not have been out of place in a Harry Potter movie. Good evening, sir, he says, greeting me with a broad and calming smile. He looks to be about 60, but he could also be a good deal older, or even younger. Hello, I- You want to take a look around? He asks, anticipating me. Well, to tell you the truth, I was intrigued by that sign in the window. Ghosts, bought and sold. He lays his hands on the counter and nods. Are you interested in buying one? (laughs) No, good heavens no. I smile in turn, my palms raised upward. It's just that I amuse myself by writing tales of the macabre, ghost stories, things of that sort. And so, as soon as I read, what is it? A joke? Oh no, sir, certainly not a joke. He looks me straight in the eye. Do you want to know how it works? Nothing would please me more. The little man strokes his perfectly clean-shaven chin. So, if someone needs some ready cash, a hefty loan, say, he only has to make a deal. A very special one. We, Desire and Sons, my grandfather way back, and then my father and so on. We give him the money and, in exchange, he pledges, once dead, to consign his ghost over to us. And that's it. I remain speechless for some moments, my face having assumed, I fear. A vaguely idiotic expression. And that's it, you say? Well, that's very nice, but... Then what do you do with, with a ghost? My dear sir, you have no idea how many very rich people are ready and willing to spend a bundle of dough to get their hands on one to haunt their mansion, or their hotel, or even their castle. Have you ever heard of supernatural tourism? There are millions behind it, believe me. Wealthy people inclined to visit or stay in dwellings that turn out to be truly haunted. And we of Desire and Sons are among the biggest suppliers in that regard. I cannot wipe the smile off my face. The entire affair is utter madness and quite a good story could come out of it. But how does it work? I ask, having decided enthusiastically to play along. Very simple. Clients deposit with us objects that belong to them a kind of surety or bond something to which they are attached Something like a ring or a watch or whatever else After first having marked it with a drop of their blood The little man mimics the act of piercing a finger with a needle We store it for an indefinite period That is to say Until the day of our clients death At which point we receive what is owed to us. A few seconds of silence are enough to shake me out of the spell that his delirious tale has ignited in my imagination. Then I suppose you have some sort of safe storage when you keep the sureties. Of course. Are you interested in seeing some of them? I was hoping he would ask me that. Very much so. One moment then. Stepping from behind the counter. This odd junk merchant crosses in front of me, leaving behind a faint trail of camphor and soap. Arriving at the front door, he gives a sharp twist to the key already inserted in the lock, after which he rotates the laminated rectangle hanging with a chain and suction pads to the glass, presenting to the outside world the notice, Be right back. There, that's done. Please, this way. I mumble a thank you. And zigzagging behind, I follow him as we wedge past the counter. The little man pushes aside the blue curtain from where he had appeared a few moments before. And thus I wind up in a short, open hallway, poorly lit by a naked bulb hooked up to the wall. Here we are, my companion says in a soft voice as we stop in front of a small door. From a pocket, he produces a key with which, after lowering our heads a bit, we enter into a room where a shadowy darkness makes its dimensions entirely indefinable. The odour that greets me is the kind that stagnates in basements. in enclosed spaces lacking ventilation. Given that the little man flips no switches, the yellowish beam penetrating from the hallway is the only source of light, and I open my eyes wide so as not to miss a single detail. The thought that I have stepped into a potentially dangerous situation does not even cross my mind. It is all far too astonishing, far too above the ordinary for me to allow myself to feel any real concern. Against the wall, illuminated by the slant of light, I see a piece of furniture consisting of numerous shelves in raw wood, packed with small boxes or little glass cases, similar to miniature coffins. Inside here, for example, the little man informs me, grabbing the first container in front of him and placing it before my watchful eyes. There's a silver locket. Through the small transparent lid, I admire the floral oval. It's engraved flower obscured by a brown stain. It's dried blood, he explains. It belongs to the woman who gave me this as a bond. Whereas this... He sets the locket aside and points to another box, small and flat. Is a silk handkerchief with lace trim. And yes, that dark stain is blood, of course. I conclude, nodding and letting my eyes wander over that crazy collection. Really, I don't know what to think. My head is full of questions. I choose the first that springs to mind. So what do you do then? Resell these things or what? In short, how do you- The little man retains his angelic smile. Still, very simple- Once the owner of that surety dies, he or she comes back here and waits for me to find someone to purchase that very same object. And when a buyer for the item is found, the ghost follows it. And goes to haunt the home of the buyer? Exactly. I fail to hold back a small laugh, even if in this circumstance, it sounds rather out of place. (laughs) Excuse me, uh, but this is also... Peculiar? Sort of. It's not really the adjective I had in mind, but it will do. This man is the very essence of the most clear-headed kind of insanity. For me, always on the lookout for the most incredible tales, he is pure gold. But I'm curious about something else. From the moment when the owners of these sureties die until you find for them an arrangement, so to speak, the ghosts, where are they? The man stares at me for a few moments from above those old-fashioned glasses of his. Maybe he hasn't yet decided if I believe his words, or if I am simply making fun of him. Slowly, he turns toward the far end of the room opposite us, an increasingly dense gulf of shadow, gradually lost in its impenetrable darkness. "'They are here,' he replies in a quiet tone. "'And they wait.' Those words seem to sear every square inch of my body. Instinctively, I follow his gaze, and I realise that the power of suggestion can play some weird tricks. I barely suppress a shiver as I am seized by the feeling that there, in the thickest of the darkness, are persons, motionless, silent. I see nothing, naturally. But the eyes of my imagination set my brain on fire. Making me feel that I am under the scrutiny of invisible presences. Coughing nervously, I'm suddenly very uneasy. What is it, Nicola? Some sort of problem. My breath is cut short. How? How did you know my name? The little man extends a hand out toward the shelf and, his fingers hovering over several objects, he finally picks up a small box, long and thin. I've got a good memory, he replies calmly, and then here, on the metal clip, your name is engraved. See? Do you recognize that spot of blood? I feel a chill all over, as if somewhere a window has been thrown wide open. But I... I stammer, and fail to say anything else. Unfortunately, yes my friend, comments the owner of Desire and Sons, feigning a look of despair. You died a short while ago. A drunken driver drove straight into you as you were walking along a sidewalk, not too far from here. The room seemed to be rotating slowly, and I recall the distant wail of a siren. I look at the stained fountain pen that has, in the meantime, been returned to the shelf, and I sensed the onset of tears stinging my eyes. I know, the man continued, at first it's always hard to remember. I helped you get out of that mess you'd gotten into with that ugly loan shark crew about six years ago, and now, as per our agreement, here you are. You could not have gone anywhere else. I want to cry out from all the horror that is wrenching my heart, but not even a breath escapes from my throat. Now calm down. I know it's a painful reality to accept. But there's nothing we can do about it. A deal is a deal. Now, stay here. Settle down and wait, along with the others. I trust I'll find goodbyers within a few weeks. Or a few months. I stare at him as he withdraws into the corridor. The faint cone of light contracts, disappears. The door closes with the strident sound of a key turning. I stay there, enveloped in a darkness becoming ever colder, still convinced I have a body that can shiver. And then I turn around, or am under the illusion of doing it, to go meet my new companions.
3: Hello again, friends. Andy Conduit Turner here. It's been really difficult choosing just one story from what's been an amazing year, but my pick is something from the enigmatic, the incomparable Manny Real Guy. I'm talking, of course, about the story Invite to Interview. I chose it because it has literally anything I could want in a horror story. We have the real-life terrors of the interview situation. We have some great gruelling body horror. And then the spice of that little bit of meta-narrative, which, if you're like me, and I know I am, it just can't be beat. Here we go.
4: You did it! Today's the day, and I am so proud of you. This is the first step, the interview, a win in itself, you know, even if things don't work out. Just remember that you got this far when others didn't. They chose you from who knows how many applicants and they'll choose you again today when you knock it out of the park and blow everyone away. I know you woke up with a crick in your neck, it's just a little twinge, but don't let that get to you. It's probably just nerves. You know how you get when you're anxious, but you're prepared, right? Of course you are. You're always so organized. You've got some talking points jotted down already on the notebook next to your laptop. Your suit is washed, ironed and hanging on the hook on the back of the bedroom door. They'll only see you from the chest up but there's no harm in dressing the part. Wearing that new suit will make you feel like a winner. You are a winner and you better believe they'll take notice. So break a leg, okay? You've stretched and you're in the shower and your neck still aches and maybe your shoulder too but it's just a touch of stress. You'll be fine when it's all over. Booking the 9am slot was the right move. The early bird smashes the job interview, as the saying goes. Get yourself some breakfast, maybe just some cereal, you know how bloated toast usually makes you. Drink plenty of water, stay hydrated, but make sure you use the toilet again before go time. That way you won't fidget around if you need to go halfway through. Good. No, not the TV. You need a clear mind, no distractions. Just think about what sort of questions they might ask you. Prepare for every eventuality. Don't forget it's okay to big yourself up a little. Even if you don't believe it, it doesn't mean it's not true. You're competent, you're experienced, and you are the man for the job. Make them see it, alright? 15 minutes to go. Let's get dressed. The trousers look a little tighter than they did last week. Nervous eating much? I'm just kidding. They won't notice. As long as the top half looks good. Ooh, that looked painful. Are you okay? The neck pain's still there? Take a couple of pills in case you've got an infection. I'm sure it's nothing, don't worry. You enter the spare room from where you've been working and do one last check that there won't be anything embarrassing in shot behind you. You could do that thing where the software blurs the background, but you always thought it looked goofy. And you don't want to look goofy, do you? Five minutes to go, you're sitting at your desk, your laptop is already on, the internet is connected and you're hovering over the link to the video interview. I think it's fine to be early, just not too early. Right, are you ready? While you're waiting in the lobby, make sure the camera angle is good, fix your hair and check your face for crumbs. You look a little pasty and washed out but that's just the stress. Your colour will come back once you land this job, trust me. 30 minutes, that's all it is. That's nothing! Take a few deep breaths, clear your throat. <clears> throat, stop rubbing your neck. Hmm, 901. You sure you got the right link? Okay, here we go. Stay calm. One by one, a series of three other boxes appears next to your own on screen, which are eventually populated by smiling faces. Three in total, all men, typical, all of them clearly working from their own home offices, judging by their blurred out backgrounds two of them are wearing hoodies the other is wearing a t-shirt they could have put the effort in you'd think you did right it may just be tuesday to them but their decision will change the course of your entire life they could at least act like they give a shit am i right sorry that's not helpful you're smiling good and you're waving really okay i'm sure that's fine
2: hello mr mulleton i'm gareth how are you The man says, clearly not
4: excited by the number of interviews he has scheduled for the day. Hi there, you say, still smiling. Don't overdo it. Uh, yes, thank you, I'm well. Uh, you too. I mean, uh, how are you?
2: I'm fine, thank you. Gareth replies. Did I pronounce the name right? Mullerton.
4: Oh, yes, you say. But he didn't know, did he? What's wrong with you? People always get it wrong. They never check and you never correct them. That was your chance. Now we'll forever be pronouncing it wrong. Never mind, never mind. That's not important. Uh, David is fine, you say. Wow, okay. The pain, it's all the way down your arm now. Any attempt to move it sends a stab of hurt back to your neck. It's all right, just power through it. Great. Gareth continues.
2: So David, thanks for joining us. I'm the operations lead here and we've got Kevin, our services lead, and Sean, one of our engineers, who you would be working alongside.
4: At least they smile. Lovely to meet you all, you say. You shift your body weight in your chair but this time a flash of pain skewers down your spine and takes your breath momentarily. You wince and I think they noticed.
2: Everything alright? Gareth asks. Yes.
4: Lower your voice. Yes. All good. Thank you. Perfect. Gareth doesn't seem to care much either way.
2: I'll hand over to Kevin now. He'll explain how the interview is going to be conducted. And then I think Sean will fire some technical questions at you. Nothing too complicated. Uh, I'll be hanging back and making some notes. If you need us to repeat anything for you, just speak up. Okay. Best of luck, David. Kev?
4: You try to say thank you, but Gareth turns his camera off. His name is still there in the square next to Kevin, and you watch as his microphone symbol changes from white to red with a line diagonally through the middle. You clear your throat? throat) Even that hurts. Can you still move your arm? Wait, no, don't try. Just ignore it. I know it hurts, but just keep going.
3: Hi, David. I'm
4: Kevin. It's nice to meet you. He says... His internet appears a bit choppy, but you can make out what he's saying. Thankfully, his tone is a little more welcoming than Gareth's. Hi, you two, you say, a little redundant since you've already established your approval of meeting them. We will need to work on your communication skills after this, I think.
3: As Gareth mentioned, I'm the, the services lead and you will be reporting to me, as Sean does. He has some technical questions lined up at the end. Some are harder than others, but don't worry. We aren't expecting you to get them all right. It's a good way for us to to gauge your experience level. Don't say it. Phew, that's a relief.
4: I told you not to say it. You always make jokes when you're nervous. Now is not the time. I know you're anxious and you're in pain, but just answer their questions and answer them with some confidence for once in your life. Kevin laughs politely, obviously having heard it a million times before.
3: So, uh, I think we'll start with the, the presentation you've prepared. The what? Then we'll ask you some questions about your experience and give you a few scenarios.
4: You've stopped listening. Did he say a presentation? You haven't prepared a presentation. Nobody mentioned anything about a presentation. He stopped talking. He's waiting for you to say something. Holy shit, the pain. You can't even move your head now. You're struggling to find a position that doesn't produce searing white-hot pain in your lower back. I'm sorry, Kevin. I think you cut out at the beginning there. Can you say that again? Stalling for time. Very clever. Although I don't think it'll help you. You scrabble through your emails, trying not to let your distress show on camera. You read the email invite again, but there's nothing about a presentation.
3: Yeah. Yes. Just five minutes on the topic we outlined. Feel free to share your screen whenever you're ready.
4: Shit, David. Oh shit, indeed. You're in agony now. No longer just physical. It's like a nightmare, isn't it? But you won't wake up from this. There's no non-dream version of this scenario. You need this job. You know that, right? What do you do now? You could close the laptop and claim technical difficulties or pretend there's a courier at the door. How about fake a heart attack What, David? What's it to be?
3: Everything okay?
4: Kevin wants to know. Um, I can't wait to hear what you come out with. I'm so sorry, Kevin. My invite doesn't mention a presentation. I don't, I don't know what's happened. You wince horribly from the pain which has taken over your whole right side. It feels like you're being cut in half from the inside. Oh, I see. Kevin does not see He could not be less interested in your excuses can, can we reschedule? Oh fuck Getting too much to bear now The whole situation, never mind the tremendous pain Excuse me? Kevin looks pissed No no, it, it's just Um. Oh god I'm afraid I haven't prepared anything I know you want to cut your losses and end this, but let's just see what happens. Stifle that scream and pay attention, man. Gareth chimes in now and his image pops back up in his square.
2: Right, well, that's unfortunate, Mr. Mullerton. As you're the first one, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there was a problem with the invite for everyone? Well, I don't think so. Uh, Why don't you take five minutes now to prepare something? and just take a crack at it. Just put yourself on mute and turn your camera off and come back at quarter past. Sound good?
4: Well, does it? Thank you. That's very kind. I'm so sorry. So sorry. I will see you in five minutes. You click the mute icon, followed by the camera icon. They're both disabled now. You can let rip. It's so loud, I'm surprised they can't hear it even through a muted microphone
2: you stupid
4: idiot you say stupid stupid fuck ow Jesus Christ it hurts so much shh it's alright you got this you just have to cobble something together no sweat take some deep breaths and get some talking points down quick you can black your way through it easy no problem okay what's the topic again oh hang on yeah wow that's right you didn't ask They gave you a second chance and you didn't ask what the topic was. I think it's safe to say things aren't going your way here. I'm fairly sure you'll be thinking about this experience for the rest of your life too. (laughs) It hurts, doesn't it? Really hurts. Like giving birth. It's like nothing you've ever felt before. Me neither. Although for me it's on the other end of the spectrum. Like being born. That pain you're feeling now. The one that is rendering you speechless. That's me, ripping the tendons from your bones and chewing on your muscles. I'm almost there. I'm glad I picked you, David. You've made this easier for me. Your skin splits in a diagonal slash across your torso and you pass out but don't die. I melt away your organs and claw my way to the light, snapping your ribs as I scramble forth. The carpet is soddened with blood as your top half splashes to the floor. Spatter patterns on the walls. Red blobs on the keyboard. Wonderful. It's wonderful, really. I wish you could see it.
3: Okay, Mr. Mullerton. We're ready when you... What is fuck is
2: that? Oh my
4: god. Gareth and Kevin stare at the thing taking your place. At me. And what I have prepared. Hello, world. I say back. Good evening, dear listeners. My name is Joshua Boucher. Some of my roles as a staff member of TOS include Facebook Administrator, reading story submissions, and most importantly, keeping Kez fat and happy. Recently, our ghoulish leader, Luke Condor, asked the staff to choose our favorite story from year seven of TOS. Let me tell you, friends, this was not easy. After much deliberation, I decided upon repossession by the fiendish Georgia Cook, once again, she delivers us a fantastic story. She is by far one of my favorite authors. Enjoy this tale of a possession gone horribly wrong. I hope you can sleep after listening. And that scuttling sound coming from your closet?
2: I swear, it's
5: not me. I need your services. Henry froze, toothbrush half-raised to his lips. It was just after dawn on Tuesday morning. Sunlight filtered through the bathroom blinds, bathing the world in watery yellow. I need your
6: services,
5: his mouth repeated, with a twinge of irritation. Henry blinked at his reflection in the bathroom mirror. There was no denying it now. It was his own voice, coming from his own mouth, but... He hadn't spoken. Sorry? He asked. Your services! <sighs> snapped his mouth. You are a lawyer, yes. Yes, 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 yes? Henry nodded. It was just over a year since he'd passed the bar. A year of endless meetings and paperwork, his dreaded inbox filling each day with emails he had no hope of taming. Perhaps he'd finally cracked, sunken into the arms of a blessed mental breakdown. Not before time. I've been evicted, his mouth continued. Henry set down his toothbrush with trembling hands. Evicted, he managed. Yes, idiot. idiot, 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 idiot. Henry's mouth twisted into a sneer. Kicked out, removed, cast aside. Henry pulled himself upright trying to wring dignity from his own sleep-ruffled reflection. I'm dreadfully sorry, he said, but I don't employ hallucinations, not without an appointment. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like a coffee before I call the ambulance. Do not mock me, human! His reflection's eyes flashed red, his mouth stretching into a maw of needle-sharp fangs. Henry staggered backwards, smacking his leg against the bathtub. His knee exploded with pain. If this was a dream, it was horribly tangible. Henry peered, bleary-eyed, at his reflection. Can I ask uh, who you are? He managed for uh, f- for client purposes. He felt his shoulders straighten, a strange sensation even without the throbbing knee. ''I am Melton,'' announced his mouth, ''Grand Demon of Hell, Lord of Chaos, Keeper of the Flames!'' Henry wondered why a Grand Demon could only afford an overworked middle-grade lawyer. And, and, and what is your problem, Mr Melton?'' He asked. I have been evicted from the body granted to me by infernal contract, robbed of a soul I was promised. Henry's reflection grinned nastily. You are going to get it back for me. Henry pinched the bridge of his nose in his tiny office across the flat. There were documents, forms, reels of emails waiting to send, and now there was... this. And my fee? he asked. His mouth twisted into a smile of unutterable delight. Oh, I'm sure we can think of something... It was a part of town Henry didn't recognise. A street occupied by tall, white-walled townhouses and rambling gardens. Henry had opted to take the bus. He had no intention of discovering Melton's vigour behind the wheel of his battered blue Mini, sitting in miserable silence as he missed his 10 o'clock, 10.30, and 11 o'clock appointments. His phone buzzed. He ignored it. Melton's directions led Henry to the wide, red painted door of number 43. He steeled himself, ignoring his expression in the door's lion head knocker, and knocked. A woman answered the door. She was younger than Henry expected, with a shock of crimson hair and a small, diamond piercing glinting in her nose. She stared at him in surprise, and for the first time Henry wondered how he must look, wide-eyed and frazzled in his crumpled suit and knotted tie. Um, Laura Parks? he asked. The girl nodded suspiciously. Yeah? Uh, My name is Henry Sinclair. May I come in? Laura moved to block the doorway. Why, what's this about? Uh, I am a lawyer. I'm uh, here on behalf of a client. Laura's eyes narrowed. "'Client?' Uh "'Henry glanced over his shoulder. "'If there was ever a time to snap out of his breakdown, it was now. "'A, a uh Mr. Melton.' "'To his surprise, a flicker of recognition crossed Laura's face. "'Oh,' she said, "'him.' ha <laughs> ha "'Henry's mouth crowed suddenly. "'She remembers me! See!' "'Henry slapped her hand over his mouth. "'Laura sighed and opened the door for him.' You'd better come in then, she said. Henry slipped gratefully into the hall, a thing of thick cream carpets and shining light fixtures. Laura closed the door behind him and turned, arms folded. What's he said to you? she asked, as if they were merely discussing an irritated neighbour, not the current second occupant of Henry's vocal cords. Uh, Henry blinked. Were there... Protocols for demonic repossession? Could it be filed under small claims? How could he represent a bodiless client? Uh, He said he'd been evicted, he managed. From, well, uh, from his body, Laura snorted. (laughs) Oh yeah, thought he'd try that one. Uh, Listen, you... My housemates are out, Laura waved a hand. Don't worry, we all do the ritual stuff. The... Henry blinked, struggling to maintain a handle on the conversation. Laura motioned him down the hall. "'Come on!' She led the way to a door beneath the stairs, then down a flight of narrow wooden steps into the basement. "'Wait here,' she said at the bottom step, then flicked on the lights. Henry blinked in the sudden brightness. The cellar was wide and spacious, tasteful cream wallpaper mingled with painted beams to create an atmosphere that might almost have been cosy. Henry stared. A vast red pentagram covered the floor. Eldritch signals seared the tasteful cream walls. Books bound in suspiciously tan leather littered the floor, some thrown open to reveal pages of crimson handwriting. A smell like old copper hung in the air, mixed with perfume. Unconcerned by the decor, Laura walked to the back of the cellar and knelt beside a large, dark wood chest. It opened with a creak, revealing stacks of bundled paper. Melton, Melton, she murmured, flicking through the contents. Oh, it's so hard to remember which demons did what. Henry stared over her shoulder. Uh, you've done this more than once? he asked laura shrugged only when uh, you know she waved vaguely we've got little jobs to do chores chores uh, window washing this time if i remember correctly the girl shot him a look we had an agreement i signed his bloody contract she added he's just sore he didn't read it properly she leaned over the chest let me see i know i've got it here somewhere ah From the depths, she produced a long, yellowing scroll. She unrolled it, examined the contents, then handed it to Henry. He stared at it. Neat lines of indecipherable text covered the page. Despite himself, Henry was impressed. As legal documents went, it was fiendish. See? Laura pointed to the bottom of the page, where the fine print ended at a signature in disconcertingly burgundy ink. Over the lavish black scrawl, someone had added an extra clause in what looked like pink biro. They always think they can get one over on us, as if we don't read the stupid things. It's a public service, really. She flashed Henry a grin. Imagine thinking you could fool a House of Law students. Henry stared at her, caught between respect and mild horror. You changed the contracts, he asked. "'When they're not looking. Usually they're too busy gloating. It's all there. See?' Henry's mouth moved soundless as he read the text. Uh, may I have a moment to confer with my client?' he asked at last. Laura shrugged. "'Sure.' Henry turned away, the corners of his mouth twisted uncomfortably. "'It's a technicality. You can't change a demonic contract. Tell her. You're supposed to be a lawyer.' ''And on whose authority was the contract drawn?'' Henry asked, wrestling back control of his mouth. ''The authority of hell, of course!'' Henry sighed. ''I'm sorry,'' he said. ''While Miss Parks may have invalidated the document in question, she does not, in fact, owe you her body or soul.'' ''I was tricked, duped, humiliated!'' You failed to read your own contract, Mr. Melton. A contract, might I add, overseen by no legal authority. He paused and corrected himself. An earthly authority. He turned and handed the scroll back to Laura, feeling the torrent of curse words building on the back of his tongue. Sorry for bothering you, Miss Parks. Laura followed him to the door. First time? she asked, flashing a sympathetic smile. With demons, I mean... Henry nodded. They're not that bad, really, she said, once you get used to them. Henry decided not to mention that he had no intention of getting used to Melton, or any other demon for that matter. He was very much looking forward to getting sole possession of his mouth back. Laura must have noticed his expression, because she leaned forward conspiratorially as she ushered him out. You just have to work out what scares them, she said. What really makes them squirm? Then they'll do anything you like. Then she closed the door before Henry could ask anything more. Henry spent the bus ride home, waiting for Melton to come roaring up his vocal cords, but his mouth remained silent. For a moment, he almost believed the demon had gone, sulking back to whatever corner of hell he occupied, fooled by bright, if lazy, law students, and the inexactitude of infernal contracts. Christ, he was way out of his depth. Henry made it back to his flat without incident, made himself a sandwich from the sad remains in his fridge, and sat down tentatively at his desk. He stared at his phone at the towering mountain of his in tray, the laptop he'd hidden in his desk drawer. A familiar dread settled in his stomach, far removed from demonic threats. Something buzzed at the back of his throat, small and irritated, like a trapped wasp. A familiar sneer twisted Henry's lips. Henry sighed, "Hello, Melton." "'You failed!' snapped his mouth. "'You had her, and you failed!' "'You breached her contract,' said Henry. "'I don't care what I breached. "'You were supposed to fix it!' Henry resisted the urge to roll his eyes. He wasn't quite prepared for the sensation of having them unrolled for him. "'The things I could do as a lawyer,' whispered his mouth. The half a guy could read. Henry paused. Hold on, he said. We never agreed Oh, this isn't an agreement. His mouth twisted into a grin. I think full possession is a fair price for your failure. Henry drew himself upright. And if I say no? The grin widened, I'll knot your intestines into pleasing patterns. I'll dance on the inside of your eyeballs while you sleep. I'll drive you mad with whispers and screams until you'll do anything for the sweet release of death. His reflection sat back profoundly. What do you say to that? Henry sat a while, listening to the rain dumb against the window panes, thinking of the leak he'd have to fix in the morning, the forms he still had to file. Finally, he asked, "'Did you say full possession?' "'Don't you dare fight it!' his reflection hissed. "'You owe me!' Henry nodded slowly. "'Oh yes, and I'm certain you owe me too.' He leaned forward and slid open his desk drawer, taking out his slim silver laptop.
7: <laughs> Calling
5: for help. his mouth sneered. In this weather, wouldn't dream of it. Henry tapped in his password. The screen flickered to life. His dreaded inbox stared from the front page. Fifty new messages since he'd last checked. Henry sat back. What do you know about emails? he asked. His mouth faltered. Uh, about... What? Emails, said Henry. Clients, triplicate consent forms. He smiled at his reflection. Suddenly, his conversation with Laura Hall made a lot more sense. If you're taking over my life, you might as well know how to run it properly. Find out what really makes them squirm. I will do what I want with your life. Now the voice sounded uncertain. Do not mock me. Oh, Henry shook his head. And when my colleagues notice how strangely I'm acting, how will you convince them not to call an exorcist? I... Again, his voice faltered. I, I would... Uh, I... Henry slapped a hand across his intray, smiling wolfishly as his reflection began to pale. And now, he said, why don't I tell you all about paperwork?
1: Hi, my name is Jasmine Arch, but you can call me Jazz. As well as helping manage Hawking Cleaver's Discord community, I narrate for The Other Stories and write a story here and there as well. My absolute favourite pick for the seventh year of The Other Stories is Mary Mary, masterfully written and narrated by Georgia Cook. First of all, because I have a soft spot the size of Alaska for monstrous women. As some of the Marys in this story, not to mention women who've been turned into monsters by a narrative not their own, as happened to one of the Marys. History, after all, is written by the victors, the survivors. And up till very recently, mostly by men, it's time we women, monstrous or not, start telling our own stories. But that's enough waffling around. Let's have a story. Picture a mirror. Mirror, mirror. Build it piece by piece in your mind's eye. It's old, this mirror. Forged from the memory of millponds and polished brass, from a time when reflections were barely our own, when we peered at the world through mists and smears. This mirror hangs by itself, in a place of your choosing. There are faces carved around the edges, intricate and beautiful but don't look too closely focus instead on the glass it's cracked now of course as old things often are held together with nothing more than the fragile logic of fairy tales the cracks spiral like lace like webs like the lines on an old map pay no mind to your reflection Ignore the shapes stirring in the darkness behind you. Choose a crack. Trace it across the surface. Feel the sting against your fingertips. Watch the fractals dance. dance, dance, dance. The evil queen runs blind through the deep, dark forest. She runs with blood in her hair and the smell of carrion smoke in her lungs. She hasn't stopped. Not to rest, not to eat... Not to brush the briars from her skirt or the leaves from her hair in a time longer than memory. She does not remember what she looks like, only that she once longed to be beautiful. She does not remember her name, only the name they gave her, dragging at her heels in the dust of history. She thinks she must truly have been evil once to suffer this fate, and perhaps she was... The story bends around her, bends through her, whispering. She tried to kill her baby stepdaughter, fairer than fair and paler than milk, in a fit of mad jealousy. Ate her heart, or thought she did, and threw her corpse to the wolves, a child sacrifice to the gods of beauty. But as things thrown to the dark can so often find their way back, So too did the child, poison-lipped and as fair as ever, with a smiling prince and a sharpened sword, and whipped the kingdom to mutiny. Mutiny, mutiny, mutiny. The queen tried to run, but Amira's love has never blunted an axe, and nothing escapes the mob. They melted shoes onto her feet as punishment, Blistering shoes, made from iron and white-hot coals. Shoes that seared her flesh and cut to the bone, smoking and crackling until the air stank. Until she could do nothing but run. They might still be there. She doesn't know. The stories have stopped mentioning that particular part. But the path behind her is crimson slick. The evil queen runs blind through the deep dark forest. The story ran out before she did, and now she stumbles over its splinters. Leave this fragment for now. Arch up and across. Follow a new crack. See how the pieces glitter. A girl stands alone in her bathroom. The lights are off. The air is warm. The world lies sleeping and dark. The girl's face floats, a pale blot in the bathroom mirror. Her eyes wide and white, her mouth a trembling line. In the bath behind her, the tap drips. Her knuckles clench. She knows what to say. One name, repeated three times her reflection's lips moving soundlessly. The girls at school whisper the game, giggling and wide-eyed, reveling in a shared secret, a secret she longs to join. She does not believe in fairy tales, but she believes in whispers. She believes just as ardently as when she knew that coffins can be made of glass, apples filled with poison, and that true love's kiss can breathe life into dead lungs. The logic of fairy tales is still logic, of a kind. And children remember it best of all. It never leaves us. Not quite. It simply mutates. The girl begins to speak. Bloody Mary. The shadows stir. Bloody Mary. The air in the bathroom grows warmer, as warm as coals. Is that firelight behind her, or just the glint of dripping taps? Bloody Mary. The girl's breath stills, her heart pounds. A red crimson hand reaches from the blackness to stroke her hair. Your reflection mists for a moment. The air grows warm. No. Don't look behind you. Find a new crack. Splitting from the first. Follow it down. Another girl. Another midnight. The stairs creak as she climbs. Her nightdress rustles. A candle flickers in her free hand, casting dancing shadows across the walls, dragging upwards from the depths below. The house lies in slumber, the world is silent and still. Only her footsteps. Only her breath. Breath, 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 breath. Bloody Mary wasn't always an urban legend. Did you know that? She did not leap from a nightmare's whole cloth. She was born a parlour game, carried on the same teenage whispers that carry her now. Softer. Smaller. Sweeter. A waking dream. At the top of the stairs hangs a mirror. In daylight it reflects the hall, the corridor, the bustle of family life. Now it sits as black as a millpond. The candle flame sends strange ripples across its surface, growing brighter. The girl whispers as she walks. A single name. Mary. The darkness in the mirror shifts, black on black, waiting. Sweet Mary. A friend to summon at midnight, when all the world is asleep. Say her name three times, and she reveal your true love's face in the darkness behind you. Mary. Mary, 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 Mary but things change. Mirrors crack. Reflections shift. Especially when viewed in the dark Now something stares back Something we weren't meant to see Mary no longer tolerates our summons The crack beneath your finger splits suddenly Veering off down two new paths You see the first Older even than parlour game, Mary Before bloody Mary Before her soft, younger self, there was Queen Mary of England, A ruler of flesh and blood, draped in religious fever, Cleansing her kingdom of heresy. How many died to the stake and the flame? Hundreds, we think. Thousands. Bound amidst the roaring tongues, Flesh searing, smoke rising, Screaming for mercy against the roiling sky, Still Mary, still bloody, and as deadly to poor Jane Grey as any three words whispered at midnight. We feared her so much that we changed her into a nursery rhyme, trapped her in stanza and verse, and expected her to act as folktales do. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. You remember her name now as easily as any parlour game. That's the power of a good story you see the second branch, sharp across the lines of history and transient folklore. And yet, it brings to mind another queen, long before Mary Tudor, a queen ancient and unnamed, obsessed with mirrors and a mirror's sweet nothings, who plotted against her baby stepdaughter, ate a dear's heart to ensure herself the fairest in all the land, and as punishment was made to dance forever in white-hot shoes. Flames and heat, pain and betrayal, running forever through the deep, dark trees. The words may shift, but the bones remain the same. Three stories, three names, three women, each a piece of the same shattered hole The same pangs of ancient terror, crafted to ensure we never forget our monsters. Whisper their names to the mirror at midnight, and try not to wonder whose voice you might hear in reply. Down and across again. The cracks here are smaller, sharper, frenzied. Your finger leaves a red smear across the glass. Stories live, not as we do, they have no bodies, no voices, no cells to divide and die, they are not physical beings, and yet they murmur, they shift, they dance restlessly on our tongues. You know this, deep in your primal core, you knew it as a child. When folklore and fairy tale Lay as real across the landscape As any scientific fact Sometimes you even remember it now When the campfire spits Sending embers arching high across the sky When the closet door creaks open Spilling shadows across the floor When you gaze into the bathroom mirror All alone in the dampened dark And see an unfamiliar face staring back When you awake alone, gasping with terror, and for a single moment see the bogeyman sitting real and whole beside you, you remember it then. Stories. Breathe. So think. If people can be driven mad, why not folklore? We tear our stories to pieces and stitch them back together. We change names, erase lives, give new tongues to old voices. We take the head from one, the arms from another, connect them to the eyes and heart and stomach of yet more. What living mind could stand such butchery? Folklore is us, after all. All of humanity, stretched across time. And just as we adapt to a changing world, so too do we adapt our stories. We twist them. We break them. We force them into pleasing new shapes. Old words for fresh fears. Modern mouths describing modern monsters. The story of a thousand years ago is not the story of today. But it's been alive all that time to watch itself change. Children understand. They almost grasp what we've done to our fairy tales. They understand the vengeance folklore would wreak upon us. Cinderella and Snow White. Pinocchio and the Big Bad Wolf. If only they could. They know to fear the bogeyman. One final twist brings you back to the centre of the mirror. Behind you the shadows convulse. You see the whites of your eyes. The flash of teeth. You realise, now, that your reflection is no longer your own. Has it ever been? Bloody Mary sits crouched behind her mirror. It is an ancient mirror. Possibly the oldest mirror of all. Her eyes are millpond black. Her teeth are glittering shards. Her breath smells of meat and bathroom damp. Carrion smoke and pleading cries. She sees all. Hears all. Watches every crack. She is Mary, she is the evil queen. She is the memory of the atrocities we commit in the name of obsession. She is our creation. Bloody Mary wasn't always a monster, but we changed her. Queen Mary wasn't born a folktale, but we rewrote her. Perhaps the evil queen was always evil. But for our own amusement, we stitched her a face, gave her a name, affixed new meaning to her legend, and thought she wouldn't notice. The evil queen runs blind through the forest. Smoke at her heels and blood on the path. The road ahead splits a thousand different ways. The road behind lies as fractured as broken glass. Queen Mary watches from her throne as a thousand heretics burn in agony, her form twisted against a mocking nursery rhyme. Bloody Mary stares from a thousand mirrors, her skin blistered and crisp, waiting for innocent curiosity to set her free. All different. All the same. All of them Mary. We tell her story over and over, Each narrative almost identical. Every fractal slightly changed, splintering off into a thousand new stories. We forced three narratives into a single space and made them dance for us in the candlelight. Is it any wonder Mary hates us? It's important to remember that we put the bloody in her name. Are you ready now? You've stood here long enough, gazing at a face that was never yours, in a darkness conjured from your own imagination. What did you picture around you? What of the frame? What of the glass? We build our own nightmares, trap our own fairy tales. You know now what we craft from our fears. You've traced the splinters of Mary back to her source. You've seen the face we give to our fear of the dark. You've watched your blood slick across the glass, drawing lines in sacrifice and curiosity. It's too late to back out now. Say her name. Say it three times. In whichever way you remember best. And pray the mirror holds. Mary, Mary. Quite contrary, what has your mirror said? It spoke of princes and kings and such pretty things. And all of them, all of them, all of them.
4: Hi, I'm Duncan and I'm one of the editors on the other stories. So it's been my pleasure to work on some of the stories you're hearing here. My pick for the podcast's seventh year is called CSU by Richard Reynolds. I like short stories that unfold over a a single scene or conversation uh, and they'll contain everything you need to know about the world for the story to work and nothing more. Uh, This story does that perfectly and sets up an ending I actually didn't see coming. So it's great that I continue to be surprised even after editing a hundred or so episodes. I also like making the robot's voice. So I hope you enjoy listening to this one as much as
6: I enjoyed editing it. O'Reilly, looking every inch your average overworked detective, surveyed the murder scene slowly and methodically. In a grimy back alley at 2am, chances of rubberneckers were minimal. One less thing to worry about. The same couldn't be said for the smell. Like a barbecue gone horribly wrong, the light breeze might have been dispersing it some, but it was still sickening. This section of the alley was fairly small, it turned off from the main access point of the street, and stopped at a dead end. So there was only one point of entry and exit. Three bins lined the dead end, and a large refuse unit was stationed next to the corner that gave access to the turnoff. No idle passerby could have seen what happened down here for a fact. Short of a light sprinkling of litter, there was little else to speak of at the scene. Besides the victim, of course. The victim. She sure was a pretty one. Young, too. And apparently not afraid to show a little skin. She sported a bikini top, a matching short skirt. Real short. Expensive looking shoes and not much of anything else. Unless you count a chunky gold bracelet as clothing. Her handbag laid nearby. The contents scattered, but seemingly undisturbed laid facing up, head tilted to her left. The cause of death was blindingly obvious, even if the methodology was anything but. In the region of her heart was a deep, dark hole, and there was an identical one where her right temple should have been. Her heart and brain had been destroyed, yet there wasn't a trace of blood to be seen. Not on the body, not on the ground, not on the walls, not even in the wounds. Damnedest thing. Removing a handy, if complex, piece of kit from its carry case, O'Reilly spoke a command loud and clearly. Crime scene unit, on. The device hummed into wakiness, running through an initialization sequence before hovering out of its hands to station itself at head high. Okay, partner, O'Reilly began, more relaxed now. What do we got? Start with a perimeter security archive check and read me the scene while you're at it the crime scene unit flew into action, scanning the alley with numerous sensors. It zipped here and there like a hummingbird with purpose, taking in every nook and cranny, quick and efficient. Crime scene investigation sure had come along over the last year or so, thanks to these miraculous critters. The CSUs, an AI-driven hardware that could perform many of the tasks of an entire forensic and pathology team, access information from surveillance feeds, and analyze all this data on-site, and in seconds, to produce complex, probability-based insights. And boy, were they bringing in results. Only problem was the price tag. Just one or two were allotted to each investigation wing of the district security bureaus. Always one to stay ahead of the curve, O'Reilly endeavored to acquire one of these CSUs. He had to do a little hustling, grease a few palms, but he'd got one in the end. And damn, was it improving his game. Scans complete, the CSU rattled off its findings. Archive check.
7: Within two blocks. Impossible. All security eyes within this radius cut live feed simultaneously, five hours and seventeen minutes ago. Archive footage has replaced the feed. Unapproved. Illegal hack. Conclusion. Eighty-four percent likelihood. The perpetrator commandeered the system long before the crime.
6: Eh, sounds about right, O'Reilly responded. The
7: scene talk to me. Proximity scans, along with cursory scan of the victim, indicate that the scene, as it is, is relatively undisturbed. A fresh quantity of urine was recently deposited by the refuse unit.
6: O'Reilly checked out the area, and there was indeed a darkened, moist section of the ground with tendrils from the mass of the stain rolling under the refuse unit. The CSU continued.
7: High potentiality, the murder was committed at this location. Whoa, whoa, slow down, partner, O'Reilly interjected. You're
6: telling me a location that has no trace of blood and little other evidence of disturbance can be identified as the murder scene? Okay, but you know I like to treat these things as uh, learning opportunities, so take me through each step of the analysis. Tell me how you know the murder didn't take place elsewhere, and that she wasn't just, uh, dumped here. The CSU adjusted its position as it broke down the findings.
7: Urine speckling around the victim's ankles and calves, exact match for deposit on site. Alcohol speckling on person and victim's state of dress suggests a 76% likelihood that she frequented a nightclub located three blocks north. Access to nightclub's external security eye archive confirms analysis and removes doubt. Victim left nightclub alone and inebriated, exchanged words with security staff, purchased food from nearby eatery before entering Security Eye dead zone. Conclusion 88% likelihood victim moved off the street and into the crime scene of her own will with the aim of relieving herself privately.
6: O'Reilly nodded along with the breakdown. Made sense so far. Right,
7: and? Further conclusion percent likelihood that the perpetrator was waiting in the alley for random victim. 95% likelihood that the perpetrator followed victim from unspecified location, within two blocks of radius, and took her by surprise, post-urination.
6: O'Reilly moved from the Pistain to the right side of the victim, taking a close look at the cavernous blackened wounds. They stank of incinerated meat. <sighs> okay... Let's run a first-level scan of the victim. uh, Forgo time-of-death-related analysis. The CSU hovered over the dead girl's head for a spell before steadily scanning down her body in controlled left-to-right movements at a constant rate of motion. Scan finished, it let loose with its findings.
7: 97% likelihood that the wound to the heart was the cause of death, with the secondary wound to the temple acting as a precautionary measure. Calculated methodical mode of attack. Jewelry, cash chip, and devices of value remain at the scene. No sign of any form of sexual assault are evident. Underwear intact and undamaged. Conclusion. 0.3% likelihood that this was a sexually motivated attack. 7% likelihood of a robbery-based motivation.
6: Yeah, pretty sure any rookie investigator could have intuited that. What
7: else? Further conclusion. Proficiency in regards to security eye network and the execution of killing stroke suggests an 87% likelihood of a hunter. Motivated murder by a highly practiced perpetrator.
2: Sure,
6: sure, a serial killer, O'Reilly grunted, craning forward to get a closer look at the hole in the girl's chest, wincing as a wave of the sharp smell hit him hard.
7: Uh, What about these wounds? Both wounds are approximately 120 millimeters deep, and perfectly cylindrical with 100 millimeter radius. Each is fully cauterized. Conclusion The wounds were inflicted with some form of super-hot, penetrative device or weapon, portable and capable of incinerating flesh and bone within seconds. Such a device is currently unavailable from any known sources.
6: In that case, shot O'Reilly, run a check for similar technologies to those you've described.
7: Only comparable device exists in the industry of machining. The emerging field of adjustable-field plasma-based heating cutters. These machines are static, large, and bulky. Further conclusion? Such a device or weapon must be personally devised or commissioned. Likelihood of traceability, 0.2%.
6: O'Reilly sucked in a breath and yawned. Clever. Very clever, partner. So, we have a killer probably unrelated to the Vic, Uh, using an untraceable weapon in a security-eyed dead zone, and no eye wits. So far, so good, I guess. uh, Let's go a little deeper. Run a second-level scan. Quick as an angry wasp, the CSU buzzed around the body, making further readings.
7: No fingerprint or foreign fibers deposited on the victim. No foreign trace bodily fluids. More. Uh, Go deeper,
6: O'Reilly insisted. The CSU zeroed in on the victim's midsection.
7: Shallow tissue scans reveal an area of mild pressure based trauma in the abdominal region, potentially resulting in bruising if death had not occurred. Interesting.
6: Does this uh, trauma hold any points of interest? Orally asked,
7: leaning over the victim's stomach. It appears to be hand shaped. Conclusion 94% likelihood that the perpetrator held the victim excessively close and tightly in place by applying pressure to this region while they inflicted the heart wound.
6: Crazy query. Can you approximate the uh, dimensions of the hand from the impression's reading? The CSU performed a function O'Reilly didn't even know it was capable of. Damn thing hadn't come with a manual, but he thought he'd figured out most of its functions by this point. A small panel opened on the bottom of the CSU, which then projected the outline of a hand, along with various specs and measurements on the victim's abdomen. Running a commentary as it did so.
7: Synthesis hand model. Total length one ninety millimeters. Span two to three millimeters. Fingers ascending sixty-two millimeters, seventy-five millimeters, eighty-three millimeters, seventy-four millimeters, fifty-nine millimeters, bottom width eighty-eight millimeters. Measurements within a ninety-six percent accuracy range.
6: O'Reilly paced for a time. There were some dots to connect now, some honest-to-God, good-old-fashioned clues, and it was just about making the right leaps, asking the right questions. Okay, Father, can we cross-reference those measurements with body scans from the medical records of all registered workers from this and all three neighboring labor districts?
7: 327 people match the hand impression with a 1% accuracy range,
6: answered the CSU barely missing a beat. O'Reilly cut back in, fully on point. Take those matches and run background checks to see if any connections exist in regards to pertinent data you've gathered from analysis of the scene. Anything at all. It was a smart play and O'Reilly knew it. The CSU took a short time to execute the command.
7: Referencing three individuals match criteria.
6: O'Reilly smiled wryly, almost disappointed. Well, damn. So close. All right, just for the sake of argument, uh, who of the three is the most likely perpetrator? The CSU projected the medical records and image of
7: its chosen suspect. Two matches, two criteria are highly peripheral. Unlikely perpetrators. Likely suspect Glenn O'Reilly, engineer, or Chalum, Alloy Solution. Conclusion You are the most likely suspect for this murder.
6: O'Reilly shrugged, resigned. No use crying over spilt milk. Every day is a school day and all that. man <laughs> well, never mind. We'll commit the perfect murder first time out one of these days. Maybe next time. Query, will destroying the abdominal region eradicate evidence necessary to successful investigation? Correct, the CSU responded. O'Reilly reached into his inside pocket and retrieved a pair of slimline heat-resistant gloves putting them on as he moved over to his carry case and addressed his ill-gotten partner in crime. Right, you, are Can you factor when the body is most likely to be discovered? He took out a chunky handheld device that looked solid, if of a distinctly prototyped nature, and adjusted its settings. No slouch in either of his chosen fields, O'Reilly took pride in the piece of kit that he'd designed and built. Clicking it on, he smiled as the restriction field held the short thick cylinder of conduction plasma in place before the heating element rendered it beyond white-hot. All the while, he half-listened to the CSU as it relayed his requested data.
7: In the instant that the security eyes remain dormant and the custodial timetables are adhered to, the victim will likely be discovered by a Refuge Collection team at approximately 6.20 a.m. Location factors suggest a 8% likelihood of random discovery before this time.
6: Good, O'Reilly replied, as he burnt away deep sections of his victim's soft abdomen, leaving trenches of blackened cauterized flesh and the smell to go with it. plenty of time then.
3: Now on to my pick. I had so many favorites this year, uh, and it was very difficult to pick. Uh, Some of the contenders... For my choice were CSU, speed awareness course, rearview, husk, invite to interview, skin deep, and my choice for 2023 was the toll, written by Andy Conduit Turner. The reason I love the toll so much is because it's the perfect meeting point between lots of things I love. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I read a lot of comic books. I read an unhealthy amount of comic books I read so many comic books that if you were to find out how many comic books I read, you'd be inclined to put together some sort of intervention to save me from my from my vices, essentially so I love love comics, I love all kind of comics, but superhero comics are obviously a, a genre I love very much I also love, as you probably know short horror stories and on top of that I love a short story that has a Perfect sting in the tale, almost like a perfect punchline to a joke, where the setup was there the entire time and you maybe didn't quite see it until the very last moment. And then when you revisit it, you see that obviously that's how the story was going to end, is the only way this story could have ended, but it's still surprising and still painful upon the reveal. So, my story, The Toll.
0: Mayday, mayday. Control. This is HC-763. We have critical failures across all engines, and have structural damage across several sections. Hopes of us getting to a safe site for emergency landing are fading fast. I... You should alert authorities on the ground to expect the worst. Captain Jordan Stewart closed his eyes for a moment, and for just a second, embraced his own fear and despair. There was nothing the tower could respond with that would change what was to come. His skill and experience could do nothing to save him or any of the other 192 souls aboard. All he could do now was bring them down somewhere that wouldn't harm anyone on the ground. Opening his eyes, he steeled himself to perform his final duty as captain. Wish us luck, Tower. We're about to. Can I offer you fine folks a lift? What? Well, who is this? The pilot leaned in as he spoke. It couldn't be. If you look out the window to your left, you should see that everything is going to be just fine. From outside, the blue superlative smiled and saluted the two pilots as he watched them wave excitedly from their seats in the cockpit. Tell everyone to hold tight. With that, the world's premier hero disconnected their radio link. ...and accelerated ahead of the distressed plane to assess the situation... ...his golden cape streaking behind him. Looking at the state of the wings and the flame-stricken engines... ...there was no way that they'd stay attached with the kind of force deceleration would place on them? Better to take them off by choice. Summoning the mighty force of the power unbound and focusing it into his hands... ...he dived back towards the falling aircraft at blinding speed... Passengers watching in awe from the windows saw little more than a flash of blue and gold. Rending slice! With an energy charged chop from a glowing hand, the left wing of the plane was cut free in the blink of an eye. Solar glare! A concentrated beam of energy streamed from the hero's eyes as he cleared the tail of the plane, immediately severing the other wing, leaving the aircraft as little more than a floating tube hanging in the air for a few fleeting moments before gravity would assert itself. Atomizing blast! Floating in a standing position, Blue Superlative released a ball of energy from each hand. Each sphere sparked with power as it homed in on its target, and as each wing was struck, began to disintegrate, deadly debris evaporating into harmless dust. Flexing his muscles for some heavy lifting, He dived back towards the plane. I'll have a 99 with a flake and strawberry sauce, please. Victor turned and began rummaging in the van for a new box of flakes. From a warm Saturday in the park, business had been slow. He wouldn't be able to afford another summer like this. He could have sworn he'd packed a fresh box somewhere, maybe behind the wafers, He knelt as he continued to search, grumbling to himself. The problem these days was that everyone still expected a 99 to cost 99p. Baristas were artists, and paying $3.50 for a coffee was nothing. But no one cared about a living wage for the long-suffering ice cream technician. Found them. Sorry about that, Sonny. Almost couldn't find the... Victor trailed off as he saw the smiling face of an instantly recognisable new customer and a growing queue behind him all leading from a wingless plane deposited safely on the playing fields opposite. Keep those coming chum. I've some people here who've had a busy morning and could use something to help them. Chill. With that, the blue superlative turned, saluted the smiling crowd and then took back to the skies. On the wind, his super picked up the protests of the bemused ice cream man. Who's gonna pay for this? Who indeed? Grant woke with a jolt, his ears ringing with sounds that it took him several moments to fully comprehend. His bed shook, nearly throwing him to the ground as he untangled himself from his blankets. And scrambled for the clothes strewn at his bedside. Morris! Morris! Wake up! It's a fire or something! His roommate, Morris, was somehow still dead to the world. Grant was no grass, but it was clear he was not sticking to the center's rules on drug and alcohol abuse if he could sleep through whatever was going on. Come on, mate, get up! Physically shaking Morris as he began to stir, Grant began to wrestle him awkwardly to his feet. Horace mumbled and did his best to cooperate, but the fire escape felt like a long way. The door to their room was thrown open. A man Grant recognised from their intake day, but whose name he had not yet committed to memory stood in the frame. Get out! He screamed, voice cracking with fear. Help me with him! There's no time! Just run, it's... The man whose name Grant wished he'd learned, fell expressionless and silently to the ground, his head detaching from his body as he dropped. In his place, the doorway was filled by a dark figure, its glowing red eyes staring directly into the room. The eyes of nightmares, outshone only by the crackling energy scythe that the shadow was wielding. Grant froze, gripping Morris tight, His companion dragged to rapid sobriety by the side of the figure which loomed towards them. The law may consider your debt paid,
8: but justice calls for greater recompense.
0: Y-you're not supposed to be real,
8: Morris stammered wide-eyed. The night shadow is all too real. The only myth here is your chance of escape.
0: Grant barely had time to dive away as the wraith swung its menacing blade upwards, embedding it into Morris' chest so far that it re-emerged from his back like a ghastly shark fin of deep purple energy, flecks of blood evaporating into nothingness from the weapon's surface. With a grunt, the Avenger seemed to send yet more power through Morris's now very lifeless body. Raw energy arced through him, sparking from his eyes and open mouth, before beginning to eradicate him from existence altogether. From his position, cowering on the floor, Grant saw what looked like a skeleton form of Morris, for just a moment, before he was completely obliterated. Sparks hung in the air where the man had stood, only moments ago, while his killer tuned his attention towards Grant. The electrical charge in the air made his hair stand on end, a static before the thunderbolt that threatened to strike him down. Please, I'm not a bad person. Trying to do things right, I the glow in the Shadow Knight's eyes grew less intense. The energy that filled the room seeming to recede back into the figure. The toll has been
8: paid. Be sure the next time it is owed. You are far from
0: anywhere justice seeks payment. Turning, the figure made the slightest gesture towards the far wall of the room. Reducing it to rubble. By the time Grant dared open his eyes again, he was alone in what remained of his room. The vengeful attacker had vanished into the night, leaving behind nothing but the sound of alarms and wails of the survivors. Half an hour and half the world away, as dawn began to break over Balan City, a confrontation between two opposing forces. That had been brewing since each had received the power that made them began your rampage ends here shadow knights indeed it
8: does hero the toll has been satisfied i'll
0: be seeing you next time with that as the first rays of sun touched upon his home the shroud of his darker half faded from around him and only karl kander the world's mightiest hero The blue superlative remained. His thoughts were consumed by the pain that no foe could ever visit upon him. The knowledge that each and every victory he won must be followed by a defeat he could not resist. That each life saved must be followed by another taken. A life taken by the one fiend he could not meet in battle himself. He had saved 193 lives when he rescued that plane only to take that same number from the residence of a rehabilitation centre mere hours later. It was the same with every act of heroism he performed. The toll always had to be paid. Already, his enhanced hearing began to pick up distant sounds, events unfolding, cries for help, the rumble of tectonic plates that would become the earthquakes of the future. With the might of the power unbound, bestowed upon him, he could answer them all. But increasingly, he wondered if he should. In a single bound he shot up, above it all, above the buildings, the clouds, the noise of the world, until he hovered in place, looking down at the earth as only he could, weighing up if it was a price he was willing to keep paying.
8: I grant you a portion of my power unbound, Use it to save lives as you will, but know that there must always be balance in all things.
0: Yours is the power to decide." He still remembered the words. They say that gods move in mysterious ways. Apparently, cosmic space entities with the power of gods were no different, and both offered similarly clear guidance On what to do in times of crisis. Carl had wanted to be a hero since as long as he could remember. But he had never wanted to be a god. Deciding whose life was worth saving. Or sacrificing. The same arguments he'd convinced himself of over the years all raced to the surface. He'd only intervene when it was the only hope. He'd steer the shadow towards only truly evil people. He'd keep looking for a way to stop it. Deep down, he already knew none of these would work. He knew what he had to do. From this day forward, I shall be a hero no more. He declared to nobody but the void of space before summoning all the unbound power he could muster. For one colossal blast of equal parts defiance and submission into the infinite. The power would always remain within him but he was determined that he'd never call on it again, allowing himself to float gently back earthwards. He began to wonder how he would reimagine his life. Before any of that, though, he needed sleep. Carl awoke as the afternoon began to give way to evening. His decision had not kept him awake. In fact, it was perhaps the sound as he had slept in years. Mindfully, he dulled his perception, resisting the urge to use super-senses to learn all that was going on in the world. And instead, embraced the normal life he had committed to. He clicked on the TV, to be greeted with an image of his former self, in full heroic attire. World salutes greatest hero, in bold letters along the screen's lower edge. And then, mere hours after saving a plane in distress, Satellite images captured these images of a legendary hero, seemingly firing an energy ball into the cosmos. A charming scene of a champion, letting off steam? So we all thought, until Dr. Lee of NASA's Deep Space Division looked a little further afield. The image shifted to that of a scientist, hastily video linked in from an untidy office. TMT-132 first became visible to our instruments a few days ago. Our teams have been studying the astral body's properties and telemetry day and night since that moment. We finally were able to establish that planetoid, roughly two-thirds the size of our moon, and composed of highly unstable elements, would have, at its current speed and course, struck the Earth in approximately eight months' time. However, mere moments after confirming this data, As we prepared to alert world government officials, the energy blast of the Blue Superlative reached TMT 132 and has reduced it to nothing more than harmless fragments. So, you're saying that the Blue Superlative has saved the day yet again? This time without any need for us to panic or call for help? The news anchor interjected. What I'm saying is that the Blue Superlative, quietly and without fanfare or collateral damage, just undoubtedly saved the life of every living being on this planet. Shit. Carl sighed as the black shroud began to form.
3: I hope you enjoyed our staff picks for 2023. Please do get in touch and let us know what were your favourites from this last year. Desire and Sons was written by Nicola Lombardi and Joe Weintraub. Narrated and edited by James Barnett, aka Jimmy Horrors, with music by Daniel Birch Music. Invite to Interview was written and narrated by Manny Real Guy, with music by Manny Real Guy. Repossession was written by Georgia Cook, narrated by Josh Curran, edited by Carl Hughes, with music by Andrew K. N. Mary Mary was written and narrated by Georgia Cook, edited by Carl Hughes, with music by Blair Moon. CSU was written by Richard Reynolds. Narrated by Justin Fife, Edited by Duncan Muggleton with music by Duncan Muggleton. And The Toll was written by Andy Conduit-Turner. Narrated by James Barnett, a.k.a. Jimmy Horrors. Edited by Duncan Muggleton with music by Duncan Muggleton. And the intro theme was composed by Tom Robson. Sound effects throughout were provided by freesound.org. Diva Stories is a production of the Story Studio Hawk and Cleaver and is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means don't change it, don't sell it, but by all means, share the hell out of it. So, until next time.
7: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly
2: Squad.
1: High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.